Well, good morning and uh, good morning to the live streamers as well. It's exciting to be singing Christmas hymns and getting us uh, kind of initiated into December this month, this holiday season month. And uh, at the same time, as we get sort of enchanted by all the uh, holiday um, sort of bells and whistles and lights and sounds and songs, we have to remember we're on a mission. Christmas time is mission time. This is the time to invite people to come to church. And that can sound like the most superficial thing that I'll say this morning, invite people to church. But where is the power of God most on display? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where is God's will on earth as it is in heaven? At church. This is where the dynamics are happening. The word of God is preached. Now I get that we live our lives and we need to be out there in the world as light and uh, bringing the gospel out there. But there's a real sense in which when people come under the hearing of God's word and come into the community of the people and see the collective witness of the body of Christ, there's a distinction there that's made in the hearts of many. And they go, God is among these people. There is truth here. This is different, a different message, a different um, tone, a different tenor. And bringing people under the hearing of God's word is dynamic. A lot of people will not come under the preaching of the word or under the, um, the, the community of the saints. They won't do that. They will avoid that. And we need to see ourselves as those who have uh, been enlisted into God's army. You don't know this necessarily, but when you became a Christian, you were going to a recruiting station and God was the one who recruited you. You thought you were just showing up and saying, I'm going to sign up, but God was um, joining you to himself. You became uh, what I would call a dependent, like on a W-2 form where we as parents mark someone as our dependent. We were now marked in God's family as a dependent of him. And Lord, the Lord has transformed us to be dependent on him as we go into mission. That's really the theme of this morning. Our text is going to be verses 5 through uh, 15, 10 verses that are part of this war manual or war strategy where Christ has commissioned his 12 apostles to go out there and to spread the gospel, preach the kingdom as Christ's proxy, uh, 12 Jewish men going to initially the Jews with the kingdom message and validating it with kingdom miracles that are displaying Christ's miracle ministry through these 12 now. This is a new mission. This is a dangerous time, a dangerous territory that these men are going out into. But they're not doing it all by themselves. They're doing it with the Lord's protection. They're going as dependent disciples. If you were going to title this sermon or or kind of umbrella the sermon. It is the commissioning of the 12, but let's have a subset title where it's the commission to being dependent, a commission to dependence. As Christians, we are called to depend on the Lord. We're we're called to get after it, but we're called to do it in utter dependence upon the Lord. When God called you to be his disciple. And he is commissioning you to follow this battle plan that was laid out initially for the apostles. He did it by changing your nature. And he gave you a new heart. And it's a heart that is made to depend on the Lord. Think about it. You are called God's child. When, when you were saved, God made you his child. Which means you are utterly dependent upon the Lord as you go into his mission and his work. In Alaska, a lot of times we find ourselves being very independent, right? Where a lot of people move to Alaska for their independence to feel free and to be up here. But the, whether it be inclement weather or cold snaps or things break or, you know, tires blow, suddenly this dangerous environment that we're in makes us very takes us from being independent to being very dependent or interdependent upon each other. That's kind of a picture of how we are as Christians. God saves you individually and you're his own and you have great freedom in that. But at the same time, that freedom is to be harnessed 
in an attitude of utter dependence upon the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Acknowledge him in every step, acknowledging him, and he will direct your path. It's a heart of dependence. And that's what Jesus is, is saying to these 12 hand-selected apostles, these sent ones. You're going out into a mission. You got to get after it. You got to go for it. But you need to do it with a total attitude of abject poverty and dependence upon the Lord. It's not just survival of the fittest time. It's time to be totally dependent upon him. Let me read uh, verses 5 through 15 to understand this theme of dependence. Read with me at verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, fill out, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Well, we don't have time to look at the, the two other accounts, Mark's account of this and Luke's account of this, but uh, all three of the four Gospels uh, give a synoptic account for this commissioning. But I do want you to turn over in your Bibles to a place um, in Luke 22 that answers why Jesus commissioned these 12 in this very unique way. This is a very precise commission. It's, a, it's very particular to the apostles. He's given them authority and powers that we do not have or possess. But we're to follow this mission. We're following in the wake of this mission, continuing it on. And we need to know why the apostles were sent in this unique way because it unlocks something for our own mission and our own life as we go forward. Look at Luke 22. In Luke 22, Jesus has just, again, talked about going to the cross. And in particular, in verse 31, Simon, Simon, who is Peter, um, Jesus is addressing him saying, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I pray that your faith may not fail. And that when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, that is a heart-rending, heavy, heavy message for Jesus to lay on Peter. Peter's saying, I'm ready to go. You're saying you're going to die and I'm going to go with you all the way to the end. I'm going to complete this mission. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying that your faith won't fail because Satan has requested to sift you like wheat and you're going to deny me three times. Now, at that point, he's turning his gaze upon the 12. And this is what he says to strengthen them because he knows he's going to go to the cross and leave them. And they have a mission to complete. They have a multiplying mission that they need to complete where they're giving the gospel. How will they do it? Look at verse 35. He said, And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? This is the point of Jesus sending the 12 initially. This is is after that initial mission. Jesus is sending the 12. That's Matthew 10. And they're going to go out on a third tour going around Galilee, winning and making disciples. Okay. Now, Fast forward to Luke 22. This is right before Jesus is going to the cross. He's hearkening back to when he sent them out with no knapsack, with no sandals, with no staff. And he says, did you lack anything? Think about that. And they said nothing. 
That's the point. That's the point. They didn't lack anything. They didn't bring anything with them on the mission. They were instructed not to bring anything out at all. But they had everything because they had Jesus. Did they lack anything? No. Because Jesus was with them. We didn't lack anything. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, you can go with provision. But remember, you had Jesus and that was all you needed. What do you need to be brave to fight the good fight of faith? What do you need to be able to at Christmas dinner uh, to share something with an unbeliever that you know is a family member who needs Jesus? What do you need to be able to interrupt a difficulty that's in a relationship where you need to enter into that and say a hard thing from Scripture? What do you need in terms of, of confronting one of your children who's straying from the faith? You need Jesus. You have Jesus and you have everything you need to be faithful in this mission. It's as if Jesus is saying, look, just like a parent would say, we've come into unexpected financial straits and we've been there before and God saw us through then and so he'll see us through now. That's what Jesus is saying. I saw you through that mission then and so I'll stay with you and see you through this mission now the one that you're embarking upon. Let's go back to Matthew 10. This is all under the theme of dependence. And if you're taking notes, you can um, put at the top header, lessons for the 12 on dependence. Lessons for the 12 on being dependent. Lesson number one is rest in God's sovereign plan. That's verses five and six. This is a very unique plan. It's very specific to these 12, though it applies to us. It says, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What is he saying? He's saying, look, you're in Galilee. This is basically the third tour of duty in Galilee. Jesus has been there preaching. He's ministered. He's done miracles. He went across the Sea of Galilee. He delivered the demoniacs. He came back across a second preaching tour. And now he's designating these apostles, these learners, those who had been called to Christ, who left their nets, who followed Jesus. Now they're being designated and equipped with authority and power to continue this mission. This is the third tour of duty around Galilee where the gospel is going out. You can't go north to Damascus to the Gentiles there. You can't go east to the Decapolis, the 10 cities across Galilee. I don't want you to go there. You can't go south to the Samaritans. I don't want you to go there. I want you to stay right here with your kinsmen, with these Jews and give them the Messiah. Give them the kingdom of heaven is now because the Messiah is here. Give them the gospel. This is the commissioning of the 12. It's very unique to them. They're going to their own people. And that symbol of the number 12, we see that over and over again in scripture. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that symbolizes the old covenant. God's promise to his people, to his nation, that was to stand as the lighthouse apex nation of where God was present. And now in the new covenant, after 400 years of silence, you have 12 apostles. You had 12 tribes. You have 12 apostles. That's not by accident. Who are carrying out the new covenant mission of Christ. The baton has been passed. Revelation 21 talks about this in the vision of heaven, the great high wall, verse 12 of Revelation 21, 12 gates, 12 angels and gates and 12 tribes of the son of Israel. And then there on the east are three gates, the north are three gates, the south are three gates, the west are three gates. That's 12 gates. And then verse 14, on the wall of the city, you have 12 foundations and on them, the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. Jesus was always the answer of the old covenant. He was the sacrificial lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice that fulfilled all the old covenant sacrifices. And these 12 apostles are now carrying out the mission with authority. The small band of apostles, which by the way, did the mission work? Yes, that's why we're here this morning. It did, it did work. We are... Continuing that mission to reach the world for Christ. 
They had authority. Verse 1 talks about that to cast out demons, to conquer sin, death, and do the things that Jesus did that ultimately would be validated in the cross and resurrection. But you say, I'm not an apostle. What does that look like for me? Well, it could look like you just living your ordinary life that God has put in front of you. I've already alluded to it. It's the dinner conversation. It's taking somebody to coffee and confronting them about their sins. It's introducing Christ to somebody for the first time. It's making connections. It's doing a Bible study with someone. It's having a hard conversation. Listen, um, I picked up this book Um, It's called Ordinary. I had read it a long time ago, but it gives a blog post of a of a woman who came back from off the mission field. She was a college age, 22 year old student. And and then she was introduced into kind of a new wave of life once she got married and um, had children. She had, you know, she said, I entered college restless. This was a blog post. And, you know, question questions Spent, uh, spun around in her mind in her 20s, and she was looking for answers. And she said, now I'm 30-something with two kids, living a more or less ordinary life. And what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn African village. What I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily, everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. Does that speak to you? Life is ordinary. But in the ordinary, I want you to just understand that we possess the power of the gospel and God is doing extraordinary things through us if we'll just be faithful. And number one, we're resting in God's sovereign plan. For these 12, it was to go to Jews. They might have wanted to go to the Gentiles. Maybe they didn't want to talk to their own. Maybe they were disenfranchised with them because they were rejecting Jesus Christ. They were already in a state of apostasy, right? 400 silent years had passed and the Messiah had come and, you know, the Pharisees had already created a false religion out of the old covenant system, a legalistic system that was saying, we don't want God. We don't want Christ. We want to do it our own way. Jesus had come and the Jews were trending to a full rejection of Christ. And so maybe... These apostles were saying, as Jews, we don't want to go to our own people. They're under a, as Romans 11 puts it, a spirit of stupor. They're blinded, so we don't want to do that. We know God has a heart for the Gentile world, the woman at the well, the hero Samaritan, the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. All of that is documented, but... Jesus wanted to offer the gospel first to the Jews. All of redemptive history, all the Old Testament promises and predictions were pointing to that offer. These Jews, at this point, one person put it, they weren't equipped to reach the Gentiles. D.A. Carson said they were very careful even when they went into Samaria um, in the book of Acts. I think Acts chapter 8, they went to the Samarian regions. Um, You have... They had no real background or technique to reach the Gentiles. Not until Paul came was there an apostle officially to the Gentiles. The whole plan, even according to Paul in Romans 1.16, is to reach the Jew first and then what? Then the Greek. So there is something powerfully prophetic about this moment. The Gentiles, even Martin Luther, who was cast sometimes as an anti-Semitic, said that Romans eleven seventeen to 24 clearly states that the church is grafted in as a wild olive branch to Israel. So there is something about God's grace and God's mercy going to the remnant of Israel. Those who will believe who are from Israel. Salvation history and being fulfilled is part of this moment. Going to others could have been a temptation. It could have been tempting for the Jews to go to pagan regions. Maybe they would be tempted to defect. Maybe they would be tempted to um, 
sort of synchronize what they believe like the Samaritans were and say, well, we'll believe some of what you believe and we'll intermix in that way. It could have been a way of protecting them from that, just like when we evangelize Mormon people who have something of the truth, but then they add extra biblical literature and they synchronize it and say, well, Jesus, we like him. We have the same atonement. That's all bunk. We don't believe that. And that can, that can breed to temptation sometimes. And maybe the Lord was protecting these early commissioned apostles. Just reach your own people. You know their language. You know the background. Talk to them about the Messiah, even if it's hard to do. It might be hard for you to go to your own people, right? Go to your own family members, your own friends, those who know you, those who know your baggage. You say, I don't care. I'm going to talk about Jesus anyway, and I'm going to bring the gospel. You have to trust in God's sovereignty, rest in God's sovereign plan to do that. And secondly, you have to reveal dangerous convictions. Look, you want to be like Paul who said, I would that I would be, be accursed for the sake of my own kinsmen, Romans 9, 1, if they would come to know Christ. You want to be like the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. Well, in doing so, you have to reveal dangerous convictions. And I use the word dangerous there just to wake us up. It's more and more dangerous. It's more and more hot under the collar to give the gospel and speak the truth. Is it not? And talk to me. It is. It's more dangerous. It's exciting, but it is a bolder move to speak of Christ. How were they to speak of Christ? It says, verse seven, proclaim and proclaim as you go. As you're going, proclaim, preach. Preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand, verse 7. Preaching is always the modus operandi most appropriate for the kingdom message. The kingdom message is not a negotiation. The kingdom message is not an apologetical debate, really. It isn't. The kingdom of, of God is truth. You either receive it or you reject it. Christ is who he said he was. He is who he is. People need to take him or leave him. It's today is the day of salvation. This is not a debate. This is an announcement. This is a proclamation. This is a line in the sand. And there's a time to do that. There's a time to dialogue and debate with people. And I understand that. But not this time. Right here, Jesus is saying, go and preach it. These Jews, by the way, were being evangelized by Jews. These are Jews that are the twelve that were trained in the same Bible, the same Old Testament Bible that these Jewish cities and villages around Galilee were trained in. They all had the same scripture. And so these handpicked 12 Jewish missionaries were showing up to these homes and they were going to present Christ to them. And it wasn't a time for debate or long-term discussion. It's the Messiah has come. Will you believe upon him? That's the philosophy of ministry here. It's the acceptable mode in terms of the message. And the miracles were proving that this is all true. Decisions should be made because these are irrefutable miracles. Healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing lepers, casting out demons. These things are powerful, irrefutable, instantaneous miracles. There's a lot of miracle ministry that's being espoused in churches where people fake miracles all the time. They, they whoop people up in ecstatic um, you know, experiences and hypnotize people and get people to say things and do things that they don't want to do. And they do it for the sake of all different kinds of mixed motivations for money and power and things. That's all Satan's deceptive version of miracle ministry. But at the same time, I don't want you to dismiss the fact that God is not doing miracles today. He does miracles in the hearts and lives of people at Anchorage Grace Church and other churches where the word of God is preached all the time. God is changing lives. He is is ending people's road of depression, road of despair, road of hopelessness. He is is eradicating addictions all the time by people repenting of something that there was no solution to otherwise. I'm thinking of someone in particular. I won't say the person's name, but I mean, people repent of things that are dramatically destructive and then they're transformed. And that's what God cares about most of all anyway, is our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us to be reconciled to him. And it comes through repentance and faith. And he's doing that miracle work all the time. That's why I want you to consider, and people won't necessarily come, but to call people to the kingdom message and say, I love Jesus. 
I still remember I, I worked a landscaping job years and years ago when I was going through college and a guy that was my boss, he was this guy who wore his testimony on his sleeve. And I liked that. I loved um, secular jobs and secular environments where, you, where it really stands out when somebody talks about Jesus. And he said that he was invited by some old high school friends to, you know, this sort of dock party out by some water and, and they begin to light up with uh, marijuana. And hey, have some, have some. Hey, man, it'll be cool. And the guy looked at him and said, no, praise Jesus. Like that's the way he responded. He didn't even say, no, thank you. It was just, no, Jesus is Lord. And I remember him saying that he said that to them. And I thought that's so odd, but that just cuts to the chase. I'm just going to announce a message. I'm not going to debate like the politics of marijuana. I'm not going to do that right here now, I guess. But it's just, no, Jesus is Lord. No, praise the Lord. That's what he said. Praise the Lord. I, I have Jesus, so I'm good. And that's how he conducted himself. That's this kind of mission where we, we um, point to, we put out, we are revealing our dangerous convictions. That's point two. We need to put that up on the screen. Point two, point two, reveal, reveal. Point three is rely on God's provision. Rely on God's provision. So as we're revealing our message, we're relying on God's provision. Look at verse 9. Verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Now that ties right back with verse 8, which says you received without paying, give without pay. Now the reason I want to tie those two things together is because it builds a bridge from point 2 to point 3. We're... we're um, We're revealing our message. And as we reveal our message and the power of God is on display, back then, I bet, during the miracle moments, people were wanting to give money to the apostles. Hey, let me give you gold for that. You'll heal me. Let me give you silver. Let me give you copper. Let me take care of you for that. And the apostles had to have a pure motive and a clean heart to say, I'm not doing that for money. The the message is freely given by God's grace. And so I want to give freely and the power of God is going freely into your lives. And it's not some sort of exchange for goods and services, merchant ministry, scam or scheme. He's saying not at all. I am calling you men to a life of dependence, a commission to dependent dependency upon the Lord. You received without paying, give without pay. The gospel is free. So give it freely. And then verse nine. So acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Don't take anything from people. Don't bring anything for people. Don't even bring a money bag where you could collect anything from people. You're relying on God's provision. So motives for mission must be pure. You're resting in God's sovereignty. You're revealing dangerous convictions. And now you're completely, totally dependent on the Lord. We know of so many weird, bizarre examples where um, the faith healers of the past would pray over things and would scam people and women and, 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 and weakened people who are vulnerable out in the culture would give money to those scam artists. Well, Jesus is saying that is not to be so. But at the same time, look at verse 10. It says, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Look at the balance in that. So you're not to bring these things, two tunics or sandals or staff, but you are to be provided for to be able to eat at the same time. It's a mission and ministry of dependence. Now, some people will say there's a debate. Why does Mark say you can have a staff? Matthew says you can't have a staff or, you know, there's some distinction there. I think the point is you harmonize the two challenges um, that are given from Matt. Well, the three challenges, Matthew, Mark and Luke, all of this is the same commission. But the idea is if you have a staff, don't throw your staff away. You can take it with you. Um, you just don't need a second staff. If you have sandals, you don't need to take a second pair. This is a grab and go moment. Just grab what you have, live in dependence on the Lord, but you're not doing it to pad your pockets. You're not trying to do that. But at the same time, you are supposed to be able to eat. Why, why do we pay ministers money for the gospel? Is it right for someone to make their living on the gospel. Paul said it was. 1 Corinthians 9 speaks of making his living on the gospel. He was a tent maker at the same time. He worked a job um, working 
sewing tents together as he was an apostle. And that's a decision churches can make to create bivocational positions in ministry. But why do you give to ministry? Why do you give to mission? Why do you give to the church or give to, um, to free people to do full-time ministry? One reason, to keep the mission going. That's why. It's all the commission. You want, you want to feed coal into the steam engine to keep it going down the train. You don't, this is when giving becomes wrong. When you give money to missions, ministry, or ministers, and things slow down so that people are taking their ease, that's wrong. And it's not wrong for a laborer to take a rest and have Sabbath time and recharge, but you give towards a mission. You give so that it will speed along and will be, be going and not slowing. Um, Paul said, I'm steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. A lot of times I will do sermon preparation, you know, throughout the week and I don't, you know, think through how long I'm necessarily doing it in a day or over a weekend or whatever. But I do sermon preparation in a way like you would do a hobby. I mean, I, I take it very seriously, and it is labor, and I do it during the week. But I'll, I'll also do it at off hours or early morning times and whatever. But I don't view that as um, the same kind of work that you might view your job as. I mean, some of you get to do a job that you love to do, where you're doing creative work, and you love to go to work, and you enjoy it. But some of you just clock in, punch in, do a job, do it as unto the Lord, and then leave it and go home. For me, I like to study, to read, to think, and to write and edit, and it feels like I'm creating something that's enjoyable to me, like you would in a wood shop where you're creating something. I can't create anything. If you know me behind the scenes, I can't do any of that, but some of you can, or you're an artist, you can paint something, and it's therapeutic. It's your happy place. That's where it is with me and Bible study. I just enjoy doing it, but by doing that, oftentimes I will become tireder than I recognize I'm becoming. And so it's like that. It's labor in the Lord that you have to be um, measured in how much you do and how you do it and, and evaluating yourself. But the reason I say that is because 1 Timothy 5.18, it says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Why, why does it say that? It's, it's the picture of an ox that's moving, that's treading the grain, but you don't muzzle it. You let it eat while it, while it does what it's doing. While it's lost in its work, you don't want it to just suddenly fall over dead because it's not eating. It's an ox that's going and it just drops. And we should be like that. The Bible says to labor to the point of exhaustion, but also to provide for the ministry and the mission. 1 Corinthians 9, 9, 1 Timothy 5, 18. It also says the laborer deserves its wages. So, I just point that out. I mean, it's sort of bold to point that out, but I think that within the ministry dynamic, we need to remember that as ministers live a life of dependence, it's important to see the ministry going forward. The 12 are a mission that is going to lead to the mission of the 72 that will lead to the mission of the 120 and the 120 to 3,000 being saved. This all is happening in the Lord's work under the theme of a dynamic dependence. The rabbis, in their tradition, they would divest themselves, while the apostles, they were divesting themselves of things as they entered into these homes. And they were, I want to remind you, Jewish missionaries going into homes. And these homes, in their minds, would have been viewed as either sanctuaries where they were welcomed, or they would be viewed as people that are hostile in their, um, you know, in their greeting. They would say, I, I don't want you to be here. It was dramatic times. And there's imagery here that would parallel even the exodus of the Israelites. Remember the Israelites in the Old Testament? They were under Pharaoh, who's a picture of Satan himself. And you have Moses, who's a picture of Christ. He had been called and commissioned by Yahweh at the burning bush. And he goes in with all the plagues and the trials that were happening to the Egyptians. They were all leading to the um, death angel that was going to go over all of the homes and take the firstborn son. Only that the the um, doorposts were be, to be splattered with the blood of the lamb. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it. That's the Paschal lamb. But listen to the parallel here. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, 
and you shall eat it in haste. The point here is that these 12 were fulfilling that imagery by giving the gospel and going out in mission on behalf of Jesus Christ, who is that lamb. You say, what does dependence look like? I want to just apply this for a second. What does it look like in your life? I've heard it said that God will put a little, just enough on you in your life for you to be totally dependent on him. I'm friends with people who are on all scales of you know, society. I know wealthy people. I know middle-class people. I know people who lead a life that's hand-to-mouth. But every person I talk to on a heart-to-heart level, no matter how much they have or do not have, lives in, in total dependence on the Lord. Because God will put his thumb on your scale just heavy enough to tip the scales to make it hard for you. That child that's wayward, right? It's that job situation that's dicey, that's challenging you. It's that you know, accusation that's coming against you in your life. It's that providential hardship or health issue that's keeping you utterly reliant upon him. He tips the scales just enough to keep us in a posture of dependence. And again, that's the point of this text. We rely on his sovereign mission. We're resting on him. We say, God, you are sovereign. You've put these people in my life to reach in mission. You've called me to reveal a dangerous message that could make people hostile to me. And I'm going to put myself out there and say that Jesus is the only way. Thirdly, you've called me to rely upon you. I can't can't do this for money or out of manipulation. I need to rely on you no matter how hard life is. And then finally, I need to reserve final judgment for God. That's point four. You say, what is that in terms of an attitude of dependence? Well, have you ever been caught wanting to control outcomes? You preach the gospel. You give the message. You say, please. I'm pleading with you, believe, change your heart. But we can't do anything to change anyone's heart. We can't. It's like, um, I I shouldn't use a cell phone as an example, but maybe it's a good one. Uh, I, I know what I know about technology and what I don't know, there's no way for me to like some, somehow come up with the answer when I don't know what to do. I need my 12 year old to come over and tell me how to use my phone or turn it on or whatever. And I might try to power something up, you know, within my own strength and hit it and check for batteries and say, you know, what's wrong with it? And then, you know, my teenager will go, just turn, turn the switch on and then it's on, right? Well, it's a lot like that in evangelism where, you know, we're trying to hit the batteries and check it and make it work and, and produce the outcome. But until God turns the light switch on, until, you know, the right button is pushed or the right thing is downloaded, um, it's not going to happen. And that's what this is telling us in terms of our mission, in terms of the apostles' mission and our own mission. Look at verse 11. It says, And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. All right, let's stop there. Again, this is reserved final judgment for God. Leave the outcome to God. The way to unpack and unlock this section is to ask this question, to answer this question. Who is worthy? What does it mean for somebody to be worthy? Well, again, the word worthy should be just a synonym in your own mind to the idea of being open. People are either open to the gospel or they're closed to the gospel. And these people in particular are Jews being evangelized by Jesus's Jewish missionaries, the 12. A Jew would have read the Old Testament and would have dreamed of meeting the Messiah in his lifetime. That would have been a dream experience. And so these Jews, these 12 are showing up, knocking on the door, and they're going, according to Mark's gospel, in twos. They're showing up two by two, and they're saying the Messiah has come, and here are the miracles, and we're validating his mission and ministry. Will you believe? And if they're worthy, meaning are they open, then you have a reverence for God, and you, you have evangelized them. You, you are greeted by them. But if they are not worthy, they will reject the message. Verse 13, if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. Meaning you can countenance those people. You can set up shop and preach the word to them and and be with them. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is an interesting dynamic. 
You need to discern who to join with and who to separate from in life, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. What fellowship has light with darkness? When you give the gospel, if somebody is loaded with scripture and they're just going, you know what, but I don't believe it, you need to just let your, your peace return to you. Why? Because when you try to force feed the gospel into somebody's heart, it just makes things worse. It makes things worse for you and your own heart. You get discouraged and it discourages them. You don't force feed the gospel. You don't cast pearls before swine. You got to be careful to give the gospel. It's dangerous to reveal it, but you reveal it. But then if it's rejected and it's obvious that there's clear rejection. I mean, think of these Jews who had learned all this Old Testament truth and the prophecies and the predictions and Jesus has come and they're going, yep, but I don't believe it. That's a hard heart. And that's someone that you have to separate yourself from. That's what they were having to try to understand. You know, churches these days, they don't necessarily understand this concept of receiving the word and being open to receiving it or rejecting the word. But that's the dynamic that's happening in people's hearts all the time. You're either receiving or rejecting. It's not really a middle ground there at all. But churches, um, to draw big crowds into their buildings, oftentimes will do this. They'll start with a life application, a concern on some people in society's mind. They'll start over here. They'll start with a motivational speech, and they'll go back to the Bible and attach Bible verses to the speech to get people to say, ah, that felt really good. I really enjoyed hearing that message because I'm motivated. I feel better about my life and there's Bible that's connected to that. Whereas what we do here is we start with the Bible. We go where the exposition leads us, where we believe in the providence of God. God is speaking to us and we just preach whatever's there. And then the Holy Spirit has to apply that message into your heart and into your life. And by God's grace, I'm hoping that you needed to hear a message this morning on being dependent upon the Lord and being on mission for Christ and that God had that for you. We start with the scripture and go to life application, whereas a lot of times churches will design their philosophy of ministry and outreach with an application and go back to the scripture and try to tie it together that way. Reverencing God's word starts with God's word and you leave the results to God and you have to discern what to do about it. Commingling with people who are um, in darkness can in and who stand as if they're in they're living for Christ can be a very, very dangerous thing to do. Look at verse 13 again. It says, If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. There's a time and a place to break a relationship and break fellowship with people. Compromising your relationships with other people will eventually neutralize the message. You say, I want to hang with these people. They're not all the way believing, but they're kind of believers. They're kind of, they're kind of Christian-like, and I want to hang with those people. But eventually, it neutralizes the message because your relationship is based on compromise as opposed to saying, I believe in Jesus, I love Jesus with all my heart, and I hope you do too, and we have that relationship together. Now, there can be a way that you can protect the gospel and protect your testimony and still have an evangelistic relationship, but you have to discern well what you're actually doing, right? Because a lot of times we'll be duped into saying, no, I'm reaching that person for Christ, whereas really you're being led astray by that person away from Christ, I was talking to a pastor friend of mine who was, um, he was gaining some um, fame and getting some platforms to preach in some pretty broad places. And he had a, a professional connection to a person um, that was um, pretty high in the limelight. And he was preaching um, with, uh, sort of with that person. And then he brought up in the context of some pastors whether or not if he was invited with this celebrity to preach on the platform with Joel Osteen, should he do it? And, I, you know, I didn't say anything because I was zooming in. But um, later, um, just I said, you know, what I would do in that situation is if I was to preach on the same platform or stage or in an arena that was called church under Joel Osteen, I would preach in a way that I would never be invited back again. 
You just preach like you're at Mars Hill and say, I'm preaching. I mean, you have a bunch of foreign idols and false gods here, and I'm preaching in the name of the unknown God, which is Jesus Christ, who commands, not just invites. I mean, you know, it's the come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I understand that. But in Acts 17, verse 30, I command all men everywhere to repent, to repent. That's the context for which you preach in that arena. You come as a prophet of God. We have to be careful with the sin of unbelief. The sin of unbelief is chilling. It's hard hardened. It, it's it'll hard heart. You know, it'll harden your heart. What do you do, what do you to do with someone? Who hardens their heart? Well, look what the apostles did. It says, verse 14, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That sounds so strong, doesn't it? To shake dust off your feet is a symbol of saying, I've walked on pagan soil and I want none of it. I'm separating myself from paganism. It's a Jew going, knocking on the door, Going into a house that's either going to receive the Jewish missionary, the apostle sent by Christ, and it will be sanctuary time in this home where you're staying and there's a greeting and it's the word of God, or you're coming into this place where a Jew is going, I'm rejecting that message, get out of my house. And what you want to do is send a clear symbol of separation saying, I'm shaking the dust off my feet. That would have been highly offensive for a Jew to do that to a Jew because you're all in Jewish territory, right? You're not in pagan territory, but it's as if you are saying you have spiritually paganized your home by rejecting Christ. How severe was this judgment? Look at this. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for your town. You're basically saying at this point that the picture in Genesis 19:24, where you have fire and brimstone coming down on Sodom and Gomorrah, where Lot had preached the Old Testament gospel of the Messiah in the city, where the angels had proclaimed that God is here and they can repent and believe, where perversion has taken over and fire and brimstone judgment is there. It's going to be far worse for you Jewish households who know the truth and reject the truth in the face of these apostles. It'll be far worse judgment for you in hell than it was for those at Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what Jesus is saying. People who are privileged to hear the word of God, to grow up in Christian school or Christian households or Christian homeschooling or um, Bible studies, and then they reject Christ. It's a scary thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is. Luke 12, 47 and 48 talks about degrees of punishment in hell. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Ultimately, if you fast forward in the book of Acts, the first missionary journey where Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Jews and they shift their focus to the Gentiles because the Jews reject verse 46 of Acts 13. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, if it, is necess- it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, that was to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy, there's that word, unworthy of eternal life, behold, We are turning to the Gentiles. Scary. This is a mission. This is a dangerous mission that Christ is calling you to. Fight the good fight of faith. Wage the good warfare for Christ. What does it mean? It means to have an attitude of weakness and dependence on the Lord. When we are weak, then we're strong. I grew up with a friend of mine in Virginia Beach, Virginia, who was a friend at 12 years of age, and his dad was the commander of a military submarine, a nuclear sub called the USS Cincinnati. And I had seen a uh, kind of a YouTube, um, what, little sketch, little um, show or program on the USS Cincinnati that was being memorialized in Cincinnati, Ohio. They sheared off the top of this submarine and barged it upriver to Cincinnati, probably the Ohio River, and brought it there. And there's a test, like sort of a testament to it. And the submarine was there. And my friend, Robbie, that I grew up with, his dad was the commander of that sub. And he was in that video and was giving a speech over it. And apparently it was um, part of rescue missions and things um, that protect, protected us during the Cold War. 
in the 80s. So that was interesting because I was remembering as a kid, I was invited with my family to go onto that submarine as a guest of that family and was, you know, walked around, used the periscope and saw the giant missile bombs in the hull of the deck and thought, man, this is a nuclear submarine. Well, that commander ultimately was promoted to um, a um, Navy port off of, out of Bellingham, Washington, I think. And he was uh, given command of a new um, kind of submarine that was called a Trident submarine that had ballistic missiles that my friend described. It just could be, you know, outside of a country and could just wipe out a country from the water. And what was amazing to me was to know this, this dad. I knew that the son would go surfing together and things, but on Saturdays, his dad would just tinker with his VW rabbit as therapy for himself. Remember that that sort of therapy job where you can just do that. And he was an unassuming, skinny, um, small man who was in command of the Trident submarines as the commander in the U.S. Navy. And I think that's a metaphor for how we are as Christians. We're weak. We are who we are. We're living the ordinary life, doing our thing, giving the gospel, resting in the sovereignty of God, revealing a dangerous conviction, relying on God's provision, and reserving the outcome to God, right? That's what we're doing. But we have the gospel, and it's a ballistic missile. We do. We need to give the gospel and share Christ and do it unashamedly in weakness because God is strong. Ultimately, Jesus himself made himself utterly weak. You remember back in Luke 22, verse 35, Jesus was challenging the disciples to look back at their mission. You had no knapsack, no money bag. Did you lack anything? Remember, they said nothing. We lack nothing. And then in verse 37, he said, I tell you that all of this, because the scripture must be fulfilled, that he was numbered with the transgressors. And as he says, for what is written, this is Isaiah that he's quoting, what is written about me has its fulfillment. What did the disciples say at that point? This is Luke 22, verse 38. They said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. They're going, look. Well, if we're going into battle again, I guess we can grab two swords. They didn't really understand. Jesus was always supposed to go to the cross. He's the ultimate example of dependence and weakness. Jesus is saying, follow me in dependence and weakness. Follow me all the way to the cross. Jesus was the lamb to be slaughtered. You're not picking up swords at this point. You're going into a spiritual battle. Jesus came as the lamb, living out the ultimate act of dependence. He was stripped naked, no bread, no money. His garments were gambled for by guards. He was not received by his own, not listened to. He was rejected. And in this case, instead of shaking our dust of sin off his hands and feet, he was pierced through with his hands and feet by Roman spikes. Instead of rejecting you, he faced the rejection of his father. This is weakness. This is dependence. And Christ died and he rose again so that we could have a taste at the banquet table with Christ in victory. This is the mission we're all a part of. Let's join up. Let's not miss out this month in December. Let's give the gospel and carry on the mission.